Today's scripture reading is from Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks again, Laura. So uh, good morning, everybody. This is, uh, this is message number four uh, in a series we're doing on the book of Ecclesiastes. If there is a book in the Bible that's written from a more uh, secular perspective, it's going to be uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, today we're going to talk about uh, about pleasure. Uh, and uh, I'll start with this, though. The number one negative uh, reaction to Christianity or to religion or the concept of God uh, in particular is uh, the problem of suffering. Uh, those who take an honest look at the problem of suffering in the world uh, will perhaps conclude that God is either weak, uh, He just can't stop suffering from happen, happening, or He is some kind of masochist who likes to inflict pain, and so He does, or maybe He just doesn't exist and we are all sort of the victims of a random and cruel universe that doesn't make much sense at all. And, and so, the problem of suffering again, is the number one reason why people react against the idea of God and, and perhaps against Christianity as well. But today's problem, uh, as presented to us by the Scriptures themselves, is what we could call the problem of prosperity or the problem of pleasure. The writer says in verse 10, "'Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. And uh, in his uh, paraphrase, the message, Eugene Peterson uh, translates the same verse this way, I gave in to every impulse, held back nothing. I sucked the marrow of pleasure out of every task. All was vanity and a striving after the wind. 
And so the Apostle Paul, uh, in the second chapter of, or I'm sorry, in the fourth chapter of Philippians, actually is in agreement with the writer here. And he says a very curious thing. He says, I've learned the secret of being content or of being happy, of being pleased when I lack, when I am living in scarcity, when I'm living in want, when I'm in pain. I've learned a secret to find contentment. But interestingly, in that same text, he says this also, I've also learned the secret of contentment when I have plenty. When I'm experiencing pleasure, I've found a secret to being content when there's pleasure all around me. Do you want in on that? It's curious. Just as much as there is a problem with pain, there's also a problem with pleasure. And that's the point of our text today. And so, I want to talk about how pleasure, specifically under the sun, which is a a phrase that is used throughout Ecclesiastes, how pleasure under the sun lets us down, why pleasure under the sun lets us down, and then I want to talk uh, about a pleasure that can't let us down. And so, first, how does pleasure under the sun let us down? The, The simple answer to that is it is always making promises to us of fulfillment, satisfaction, happiness, complete life, but it never delivers on any of those promises. And so, these words that are in front of us today, um, you could say that these were the diary entry of Solomon or of somebody who thought like Solomon and had similar experiences as Solomon. And uh, this particular entry is about the hedonist years, the self-indulgent, pleasure-seeking years of his life. He's talking about full-throttle self-indulgence. I kept my heart from no pleasure. And he looked to things like laughter, wine, great works, possessions, silver, gold, treasure, singers, concubines. He's trying to find his happiness the secret of contentment in all of these different things. Let's go through them one by one. Verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad. So one of the commentaries I, I, I read when I was preparing this, this message was uh, from a, an Anglican minister named David Gibson who points out the fact that if you read the autobiography of most comedians, you will actually discover beneath the humor a very sad and lonely life. Solomon's echoing that. Laughter won't do it. Sometimes laughter is our our medication for how sad and lonely life can be. In verse 3, he says, I searched my heart for how to cheer my body with wine. So, wine is representative of, of a pleasure agent, of, of any type of, of, uh, of kick or, or buzz that we can get uh, from things that could potentially addict us to themselves. If you think about wine or alcohol or substances, you know, you start with a certain amount and it gives you a rush of pleasure, but over time you have to take larger doses and, and bigger sips and drink more glasses in order to get the same effect because of how tolerance levels build up. 
You start with a little and then you need more. And this, this could take place with alcohol, with narcotics, with nicotine, with food, with Netflix, with shopping, with weekend football. You know, like uh, the band Guns N' Roses said in their uh, song about heroin addiction called Mr. Brownstone, I used to do a little, but a little wouldn't do it, so a little got more and more. Verses 4 and 7, I looked to great works and possessions. Did you notice when he's listing all of his possessions, it's all in the plural. I had houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, trees, pools. It's like he's manufacturing his own version of the Garden of Eden that was once lost to the human race under Adam and Eve. Silver, gold, treasure. You could say that Solomon was the Jeff Bezos or the Bill Gates or the Warren Buffett of his time. You know, he had to hire generations of slaves to build and curate and maintain all of his possessions. His life was so opulent. Singers, imagine if you could have not only your favorite artists, but all of your favorite artists living with you, permanently on call. Kenny Chesney, Beyonce, Yo-Yo Ma, U2, James Taylor, Taylor Swift, John Coltrane, all at your disposal anytime. Going to have a party tonight. I think it's going to be a jazz party. Miles Davis, we need your services tonight. And tomorrow it's going to be, you know, an indie rock uh, uh, concert in, in, you know, the, the, the East Wing. Lone Bellow, come on. You know, we, we, we need your music tonight. That's how he lived. Many concubines. The NIV says many harems, and we get a picture of what many means in 1 Kings chapter 11. It tells us that he had 700 wives and princesses, and on top of that, 300 concubines. You know, he made, Solomon did, the infamous Playboy Mansion look like a monastery. And he made Hugh Hefner look like Billy Graham. He really did. I considered it all, he says in verse 11, and behold, whenever you see that word behold, it means pay attention, listen up, you need to hear this. This needs to be your takeaway. Behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So, if, if you were at the, uh, the inaugural uh, porch night uh, that CPC uh, held for men this past month, our, our speaker was, was Jean LaRue, and he brought up a couple of examples of, of Solomon-like experiences where where pleasure and momentum and silver and gold and treasure and great works and possessions and whining and dining did not do it. One was um, the best-selling novelist who goes by the pseudonym Jack Higgins, and his, his breakthrough novel was The Eagle Has Landed. Chances are there are several people in this room who have read that book. It sold over 50 million copies, which for perspective, that's about one-sixth of the U.S. population. He wrote 83 novels total, sold over 150 million novels, cumulative, in 55 languages. And at the end of his career, his takeaway was this, I wish that I would have known then what I know now, 
that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. Boris Becker, young tennis champion on top of the the tennis world after he wins his third Grand Slam, and he's asked the question in the interview after the match, after after he wins the championship, what is your greatest challenge moving forward? And his answer to that question was, my greatest challenge is trying to think of a reason not to kill myself. Marie Antoinette, who lived her life in Solomon-like luxury, famously said about all of her possessions and luxury and opulent living, nothing tastes. Just a couple years ago, New York Times puts out an article um, uh, writing about the relationship between affluence and happiness. And one conclusion of that article was that the United States is still the most affluent, the most wealthy nation in the world, and the United States is the 23rd happiest nation in the world. How do we account for this? How do we account for the notion that the good life isn't necessarily so good, or that, that pleasure can actually become a pathway to pain, or that things that we depend on to satisfy us so often can leave us empty, that external opulence and riches can actually reveal an internal poverty that's there. What do we make of all this? And and so, that's going to bring us to our second question. Why does pleasure under the sun let us down? Why does it not work? And the answer, we could actually go back to 1 Kings 11 again, where it talked about all of Solomon's women, and get the answer to that question. Misguided worship, disordered hierarchy of loves, plugging the emotional umbilical cord into things that will not sustain your happiness. It says in 1 Kings 11 that Solomon turned from God, and every time we turn from God, we have to turn towards something else or someone else to fill that hole, that void that's in our hearts. It's like Bob Dylan wrote, right? And right, like, he, like he sang famously, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but everybody's got to serve somebody. We are helplessly worshipful people. Now, David Foster Wallace, who wrote uh, primarily to a postmodern and secular audience, said this. It's very perceptive. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap into for real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud 
always on the verge of being found out. So C.S. Lewis, who had once been a secular atheist and had later on through, the, through his friendship with, with Tolkien become a Christian, would, la- would later write this, and this is a, more or less a, a summary of, of the answer to all the questions that Ecclesi- Ecclesiastes is asking today, when Lewis says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And so really what the teaching this morning boils down to is that when it comes to the pursuit of pleasure, fulfillment, satisfaction, happiness, whatever word we want to use, there are really only two pathways in that pursuit. The first pathway is the one that David Foster Wallace and C.S. Lewis, as well as Solomon, are trying to expose, and that's the pathway under the sun. When when we we chase after some finite thing, some non-eternal thing, and, and, and try to plug our emotional umbilical cords in it to give us life, it can be money, it can be things, it can be, you know, the body, beauty, power, intellect, or as Lewis says, drink and sex and ambition. And, 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 and as Foster Wallace says, if we go this route, it will eat us alive. Eventually, it will eat us alive. You know, Romans chapter 1 is a, is a very famous passage in the Bible that talks about the wrath of God. You know, when we hear that phrase, the wrath of God, we cringe a little bit and we think of fire and brimstone, and certainly Jesus uses those images, whether, whether He's being hyper-literal or whether He's being, um, you know, metaphorical uh, to appeal to our senses about judgment. We, we, don't, we don't know, but we do know it's awful. But when the Bible talks about the wrath of God in Romans chapter 1, which is one of the longest lists of, of how the wrath of God is poured out, the wrath of God is this. He gives you exactly what you want. He says, okay, not my will, but yours be done. That's what the wrath of God is. You want to turn away from me and turn toward something else and turn something else into your Jesus, okay, I'm removing my hands. So the New York writer Cynthia Heimel uh, wrote a piece some time ago in the Village Voice, and uh, in that piece, she uh, was reflecting on how several of her friends were, uh, were, you know, theater people who got their acting career started, you know, off-Broadway and were sort of struggling actors living in closets and so on, and, and, and some of them actually made it to Hollywood. They got their break, made it to Hollywood, became Hollywood stars, and what she observes in her article in The Village Voice is, None of them are happy. All of them are emptier now than they were when they were struggling fiercely just to make ends meet. And here's a, here's a, a loose paraphrase of something that she wrote in that article. If God wants to play a rotten practical joke on us, He grants us our deepest wish. 
and then giggles merrily as we begin to realize that we hate our lives. That, that's, a, that's a decidedly secular voice echoing what Romans 1 says. Be careful what you wish for. The other option in the pursuit of happiness and fulfillment and joy and meaning is to plug our emotional umbilical cords into something or someone that is beyond the sun instead of under the sun. You know, David Foster Wallace, again, I'll repeat one thing he said, an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. What he's saying is this, the human soul is a thirsty thing. The human soul is very, very thirsty, and it is very, very big. So imagine if somebody tasked you with turning the Grand Canyon into a big lake, and they gave you a squirt gun and a hose and a bucket and said, get after it. I mean, how crazy, right? This is what you're giving me to fill the Grand Canyon with, with water, and you squirt your first squirt, and you, you realize that the water evaporates before it even hits the ground. That's what it looks like if you can see things cosmically, if we can see things from God's perspective. That's the foolishness of trying to fill a human soul with anything less than God. Or as Romans 1 says, turning created things into our creators, as it were, the objects of our worship. Psalm 42 brings it all home. And this is a prayer that was penned by the father of Solomon, who had learned the secret of contentment in plenty and in want, as the deer pants for the water, as the pure deer thirsts for the water, so my soul thirsts and longs for you, O God. And that brings us finally to the pleasure that cannot let us down. This is the secret that, that Paul spoke of in Philippians. If you want to experience happiness in the truest sense, fulfillment, meaning, satisfaction, purpose, that won't fade, that won't evaporate on its way down, down to the, the bottom of the Grand Canyon. It's a three-part process. Detach, attach, and then fully enjoy. Detach yourself from finite things. Unplug your emotional umbilical cord from things under the sun. Comedy, wine, great works, possessions, silver, gold, treasures, singers, concubines. Unplug your emotional umbilical cord from those things. We get a picture of this in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus sends out 72 of His disciples and He says, I want you to go out and I'm going to give you power. Power to heal people. Power to speak words that will transform entire lives and entire cities and entire communities. Yes, the entire world. I'm going to give you power. And they go out and they, they preach the gospel. They, they pray over sick people and sick people are healed. And they come back to Jesus and they say, Jesus, you won't believe this. 
We do have all this power. It's amazing. Wind at our backs everywhere we go. Even the demons, these invisible forces of darkness, obey us. Power is awesome, isn't it, Lord? And Jesus says, you know what? You want me to tell you something about power? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven and get exiled from heaven just as Adam and Eve were exiled from heaven as they turned away from God toward created things just as you are right now. Be careful what you wish for. Then he goes on and he says, I have given you power to tread on scorpions, to heal the sick, to give a home to the lonely, to empower the weak, to uplift the poor, to build life-giving communities that will transform cities, but do not rejoice in this. Hold it loosely. Don't need it. Enjoy it, but don't need it. Rejoice instead that your name is written in heaven. The 16th Psalm, again, from King David, the father of Solomon. You make known to me the path of life, O Lord. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your hand, at your right hand, are pleasures forevermore. And, and what is, who is, at the right hand of the Father? I believe in Jesus Christ our Lord. Crucified, died, and buried, descended into hell. Third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Jesus Christ is the pleasure center, the only pleasure center that will satisfy something as large and something as thirsty as the human soul created in the image of God. So, there's a detaching element and there is an attaching element. Jesus as the pleasure center, one of the podcasts I like to listen to, Perfect Timing, this past week, the speaker said, think about this, the human body has five senses, five sensual pleasure centers, vision, hearing, taste, smell, touch. The teacher went on to say the human soul also has all of these senses. Ephesians says, open the eyes of my heart so that I may see God. Jesus says, the sheep hear my voice. The Psalms say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Second Corinthians talks about how the Spirit-filled body of Christ is the aroma or the fragrance of Christ out in the world. Hebrews says that the Scriptures themselves are a sword that pierces the soul in the same way that a scalpel cuts skin in surgery. The sensual experiences of sight, sound, taste, smell, and touch are woefully inadequate as substitutes for God, but they are all wonderful pathways and pointers 
to God. And that's the third part of the process. Freely enjoy the pointers. Freely enjoy the pathways. But remember, they're just pathways and they're just pointers. Never mistake the appetizer for the feast. Never mistake the road sign for the destination. There's a danger, by the way, in swinging the pendulum too far. We can become sort of functional uh, adopters of Eastern religion that says the physical world and the body and, and matter is insignificant. In fact, an evil that needs to be avoided and escaped. The whole concept of nirvana is to escape the body and the physical existence and suffering and, 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 and lesser physical pleasures to, to get caught up in, in you know, spiritual nirvana. But Christianity is a very physical faith. It, it represents a merging of body and soul, a merging of the physical and the spiritual. After all, when Jesus came back, He came back in a resurrected body, and He will return in a resurrected body. His first public miracle was to turn water into wine. The first thing He did for His disciples when He appeared to them after His resurrection was cook some fish and say, guys, have something to eat. If there was a party or a feast, Jesus was there. He talked about Solomon even in the Sermon on the Mount in all of his splendor, and it was an affirming statement, not a repudiation of pleasure. Yale theologian Miroslav Volf said that attachment to God amplifies and deepens our enjoyment of the world. Amplifies and deepens. It's another way of saying if, if my love for Jesus exceeds my love for my wife, I'm going to enjoy my wife infinitely more than I would if my love for my wife was greater than my love for Jesus or put in wine or weekend football or shopping or whatever pleasure we're tempted to bow down to. If the hierarchy of our loves has Jesus at the top, it puts everything else in order. An attachment to God amplifies and deepens the enjoyment of the world. Call it healthy hedonism. The more delicious Jesus is to your soul, the more delicious everything else will be to your body. The more delicious the marriage bed will be to your skin, the more delicious music will be to your ears, the more delicious beauty will be to your eyes, the more delicious the scent of a flower will be to your nostrils the more delicious bread and wine will be to your palates. Seek first the kingdom of God, and nothing will be subtracted to you. And all of these things will be added. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. You have, as the great Saint Augustine once prayed, made us for Yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in You. You make known to us the path of life. 
And in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, as we approach your table, would you consecrate, set apart this bread, this cup, and as you engage our pleasure centers, as you engage our physical senses with the bread and the cup, would you point us to a deeper reality? Would you allow us, sir, not to stop at the appetizers, but to run plunging to the feast, the internal witness of the Holy Spirit that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, and in Christ, at your right hand, the pleasure center of the universe is fullness of joy. May we experience all of these things. May we taste and see that you are good. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.